Yeah, it's like, you know, look, it's like the the bottom of the ninth inning and the seventh game of the World Series score tied, you know? Yeah. There are two kinds of players. They're the ones who go, this is what I've dreamed about my whole life. I hope I don't fuck it up. And then there's the guys who are like, this is what I dreamed about my whole life, and now I get to live it for real, you know? Mm -hmm. Who's going to win the game? Yeah. Those second guys, right? And so you got to enjoy it when you're in the moment because you got to remember this is what we what we've always wanted to do, and we're doing it, you know? Hey everyone, I'm Luke, and welcome to another episode of Exploring Kodawari. For this episode, we were joined by the fabulous trumpet player and an old mentor of mine, Scott Moore, who's been principal trumpet of the Memphis Symphony Orchestra since 1988. He has performed with the Chicago Symphony, the St. Louis Symphony, the Baltimore Symphony, the National Symphony, and the Toronto Symphony. Basically, he's got a long, impressive bio, and I'll link that in the episode notes for you to check out. And Scott is also on the faculty of the Hot Springs Music Festival in Arkansas, which is where I met him back in 2014. So it was really great to catch up with him and talk about music, trumpet, and life. Just as a warning to our non-musician listeners, who we lovingly call music muggles, we do get into the weeds about some geeky trumpet and music stuff. But I think overall we stuck to topics that apply to pretty much anything in life that one tries to really master or get good at. Trumpet players get a bad reputation for being the meatheads of the orchestra, but Scott is a great example of how not true that is, or at least how not true that can be. All right, if you like what you hear, you can always support us by sharing it with someone or leaving a review. And if you really want to support us, you can click the link to our support page in the episode notes where you can make a donation through our secure PayPal link. Either way, thanks for listening. Thanks to Scott for coming on and hope you enjoy the episode. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> All right. Well, Scott Moore, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, it's great to be here. I usually, after we record, attach some kind of intro with a, a more basic bio of whoever we're interviewing. Can you give a more personal account of who you are, your general life path, and what you've been up to kind of thing? Sure. Okay. Well, I'm principal trumpet at Memphis Symphony. Uh, I've been in Memphis since 1988. Um so, you know, that's a long time. That's a year before um, I was born. I, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, I uh, I love Memphis. Uh, I love my colleagues. We have a great concert hall. Uh, the orchestra sounds really good. You know, everything's great. So, you know, I'm very happy. Um, it's, uh, you know, when I, I grew up in Mississippi and um, – you know, there's a, a joke around here that Memphis is the largest city in Mississippi because most people move, you know, if they want to go to the big city, they go to Memphis because it's, it's literally, I can get there in 15 minutes from my house. That's awesome. You know, but, but um, it's, um, you know, I, I, of course, didn't come here from Mississippi. I mean, I went to school. I started college in, uh, in Mississippi at Delta State University, a great trumpet teacher at the time. His name was Mike Ewald. And then halfway through my my bachelor's, he took a job down in Louisiana at Lake Charles, Louisiana, at McNeese State University. So I followed him down there, finished my bachelor's. Mm -hmm. um, he wound up going to University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana after that. Um, and he died of uh, cancer about uh, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I went to see him the night before he, he died. He was a great mentor to me, really kind of a father to me in so many ways. Mm -hmm. um, 
then I went to do my master's at New England Conservatory. Loved it. I um, mean, it was like culture shock in the best ways possible. Yeah. Um, I was an usher at Symphony Hall, so I heard the Boston Symphony and orchestras from all over the world several nights a week. And, um, you know, it was just a great experience that way. The colleagues that I had there, you know, the other trumpet players were all, you know, we were all, we decided that, because there were like nine trumpet players in each orchestra. So we decided, you know, you know, one concert, all you might play is like second trumpet on a Mozart piano concerto or something. So we decided if we're not on stage, we're going to meet downstairs in this room and we play for each other and played, you know, with each other and stuff and busted each other's chops. And it was a great group and just about everybody in there, you know, has gone on to have good careers, you know. So yeah. I think I credit, you know, that group of guys for, you know, really for my um, still playing the trumpet, you know. I think non-musicians um, don't realize how, how um, sort of tight you can form groups with your own instrument when in school, it becomes like the studio becomes almost like a sports team type of um, group bonding. It's true, you know, cause going from a liberal arts school, um, then going to a conservatory for my, for my master's, it's like, you know, all of a sudden I was a brass player. So I was kind of like, that's analogous to being a jock at a liberal arts school. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a whole different dynamic, you know, um, you but it's, it was it was great fun, you know. Why do you and think that Austin's is that the, the trumpet player, brass player mentality we get associated as being the jocks of of the orchestra? Oh, there's so many different reasons for it. I mean, I think it comes from you know the our need to play with confidence, you know, because mm -hmm. we play loudly, and uh, you know, even when we're playing soft, it's louder than a lot of other instruments, and so we have a, a you know. We have to have confidence when we play. We have to, and we also have to have a thick skin because mistakes are going to happen. And um, when those mistakes happen, if you dwell on it, you know you're screwed. Yeah. So you have to um, always keep that confidence. But confidence comes from preparation, of course. You know. Mm -hmm. But you know, I think that's kind of where that mentality comes from because of the thick skin we have to. Uh, develop because our mistakes are so apparent to everyone that, um, you know, we kind of do develop a, naturally a swagger. Yeah, the swagger. So. I think that's what I picked up from you uh, when I came to the Hot Springs Music Festival in 2014. It was the year before I started my master's because that, that was, um, I think, it yeah, it was the year before I started. And before that, I don't know, you probably, maybe you remember, I, I, I came in a little bit more of a timid kind of defensive player. And I feel yeah. like you really injected that, you know, you just got to do it. And um, That's right. I think good. you found a good way to convert the nervous energy that you feel as a brass player into that, you know, fuck it, go <laughs> kind of energy. I mean, yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm glad to hear that that paid off for you because I'm telling you what, man. If you don't if you don't conquer that demon, you know it's it's a, you know I've seen guys you know um, just completely drive themselves bonkers yeah. playing the trumpet, you know because it's you know it's you know you sit and you sit and you sit and then you gotta you know wake everybody up and let them know it's time to go home. <laughs> you know? So. Um, it's, it's, um, I love it. I just absolutely love playing the trumpet. You know, it's like, this is what I wanted to do when I was a kid. Now I get to do it. So, you know, why not have fun with it? You yeah. know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to torture myself with all the things that can go wrong because I've done all those things. Yeah. <laughs> I've made all the mistakes, you know, and I'm still kicking. So, yeah. Yeah. There's something about once you've made a giant mistake, then 
it's like, well, I'm, I still just went home and ate dinner. <laughs> like nothing. I, that's true. Y- your brain sets up this life or death. Like I remember the first time I've been doing mostly Baroque trumpet stuff for the last few mm-hmm. years. So the first time I played first on Messiah, that trumpet shall, shall, the trumpet shall sound like failure mode was just like in the front of my brain all the time. Like, mm-hmm. okay, I could just get, I could hit full fatigue halfway through and and then be in survival mode and sound on Baroque trumpet, especially when you get fully tired. Oh God, it's just like, it can be a nightmare. And I don't know. I think in one of the performances I did get pretty tired, but then it just still went on because there's something about that performance mode energy that your body finds a way. That's exactly right, yeah. And then after that, I was like, okay, if I can trust somewhere, almost like a religious like trust, like my body will find a way in the heat of battle, you, you sort of find this different, I don't know, my teacher in, 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 at Stony Brook, Kevin Cobb, used to call it the fuck it energy too. He's just like, you got to just feel that like, whatever. It's just, it is what it is and just breathe and play, you know? There's something I think That's that... Right. Um, the general population of people could learn from trumpet players in terms of that. I don't know how to export it into uh, regular wisdom, but yeah, I was going to say, like, well, there's so much of it in sports psychology, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it kind of permeates that field as well, you know, um, and, and, you know, the fucking energy comes after, you know, preparation, you know, mm. lots of adequate preparation. And, you know, there are times when, you know, you work and you work and you work on something, but it's, uh, you know, you get like almost there. And then there's something about getting in front of your colleagues yeah. for a rehearsal that like pushes it over the edge. You know, it's, it's fascinating, Yeah, you know? So, um, nobody wants to screw up in front of their friends. You know? Yeah. You get that it's extra little percentage. In front of the audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I was saying like, you're so right. You get that extra percentage of ability somehow in the moment of, I have to perform in front of people in a rehearsal or in front of an audience for a concert. Something changes. I haven't quite that's figured right. it out, but I'm so much better at performing in concerts than I am at auditioning. That's for sure. Something I still have to figure well, out there, how to make a shift. Me too. You know, there are two different skills, you know, yeah. but um, the thing is, is that uh, all the things that you work on to prepare your auditions, you know, all of those skills translate into good performances though you know you work yeah. on your rhythm your intonation your evenness you know all those things that you know help prepare you to take a good audition also help you be a good performer so you know it's not mutually exclusive it, but they are different skills it's a completely yeah. different mindset and i found yeah, that yeah. you know i mean you know when i was you know doing really well at major auditions you know uh, i called myself the greg norman of the trumpet world for a while because i was coming in second everywhere you know <laughs> uh, but you know so if people want to take lessons on auditions I, I tell them that you know i always joke that i can teach you to be runner up for every major orchestra in the country but, <laughs> you know anyway so but you know when i was you know playing at a high level for auditions, uh, I found that what I did was I prepared the audition experience. And that's a lot of visualization uh, and a lot of, you know, you know, I, I did all of my practicing from warming up to, you know, running the lists in big rooms, you know, a church or something like that. They'd let me come use their their sanctuary or something. So I get used to playing yeah. in a big room, you know. So, I mean, my practice room here has got like a, you know, 
seven foot ceiling or something, you know, it's small oh, nice. and, you know, so it's just kind of harsh and dead, you know? And then when I go down to the hall, it's like, Oh wait. Yeah. So, you know, so you have to really, you know, uh, preparing an audition. It's like you have to prepare the audition, not the excerpts. You know what I'm saying? You have to prepare mm-hmm. yeah. how yeah. you're going to play that audition. And yeah. that involves just running through everything without stopping, just like you would on audition day. Because if you stop, you, you clam a note in the middle of Petrushka, then you stop and you fix it, you've given yourself permission to screw up. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you have to practice going through no matter what, you know? And then when you finish running whatever list you picked out for yourself, then you say, okay, what did I screw up this time? I'm not going to do that next time. You know, and that's really all you mm-hmm. need to do. You know not you know how not to clam that note in the middle of Petrushka because you've done it thousands of times without clamming. You just have to have yeah. that in your mm-hmm. mind, you know. So mm-hmm. was there like a, a mental shift that you experienced before winning this job, or you think it was just time, like it just randomly happened, like that you were in a runner up all of a sudden you just had the Oh, in Memphis? Yeah. Well, see, um, Memphis was a different situation. I'm, the the runner up things I was talking about was after I was in Memphis, you know. So, um, you know, uh, trying to make that next step, you know, cuz let's face it, I, you know, most people dream about being in the Chicago Symphony or Boston Symphony or whatever. And, you know, so I was in Memphis and, you know, like I, said, I enjoy Memphis, but, you know, you dream about Chicago Symphony or whatnot, you know. Yeah. So, so those th- those were the ones where I, I was, you know, you know, a good friend of mine who I went to NEC with, um, uh, when um, I saw him at the semifinals, I guess, for a job in Chicago, um, um, fourth trumpet, I think it was. Um, and, uh, and so they came and announced the finalists, and I was one of them. And I just kind of did this, like, you know, Finch Clist. Finch fist clinch and um, yeah. you know and my friend told me later uh, that he said he went into his dressing room and he looked in the mirror and he goes I don't have that look that Scott has <laughs> you know that like mm. you know I have the tiger thing which I had at that time that was the mental shift you know um, mm-hmm. now you know uh I haven't, you know, I retired from competitive trumpet playing, you know, years and years ago, probably 15 years ago at least, you know, and I um, I feel like I'm playing better now than I ever have. I'm learning stuff every day, which is very exciting. But, um, you know, for me to, to take an audition now at my age, it's just kind of like, it's more of a, you know, why do I got to do this bullshit kind of thing? You know, it's not so much of a... A competitive game for me anymore you know what i mean so um yeah. it's just kind of like uh i've been on the other side of that curtain and i know what kind of bullshit goes on back there you know um mm. and it's just it, it it annoys me if i were to have to do something like that of course you know i've got a good life here and like i say i'm too old to, for a change you know so. Am I too young to already be thinking like, oh, like, I was fuck that about bullshit. to say the same thing. I'm in New World. I'm already thinking of it. I'm like, fuck this shit. Like, you know, it, well, I don't know. I I feel like the the Baroque music world that I've been doing has the mindset you just described, um, all like just kind of embedded in it of where people are just like, all right, this is less about competition and more about just finding the beauty and and being present and that kind of thing. I don't know if that's. There you go. Um, 
it's possible that as the Baroque early music thing wave gets more and more popular and it comes to more and more universities that it will be embedded into the whole competitive hierarchy of music. But it sort of ha is like half that and half not that still. It's, it's very much personal connections and people seem to value that, that sort of more zoomed out artistic thing than like the perfection of, 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 of audition type training. I don't know. I, I was, well, that's good. Um, you know, I mean, and, and look, auditions don't have to be perfect either. You know, I mean, just like performances, because let's face it. Um, like I say, I've been on the other side of that curtain and I'm not sitting there making tick marks every time somebody clams a note or whatnot, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I've literally sat in auditions where I hear somebody play a warm up arpeggio and I write no at the top and turn it over because you can tell from the sound and the bad pitch on playing on a warm up arpeggio mm -hmm. that's not going to work in our band. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So yeah. <laughs> um, it almost tells you more I've, than the perfect excerpt they play right after it. Um, well, sometimes the thing is nobody's going to play a you know quote unquote sure. perfect excerpt yeah. after after a warm up like that because let's face it, um, you know there's a certain you know, it's Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, mm -hmm. everybody, um, you know, people don't realize, you know, the things that they're not doing well. And the, you know? the more so, they, <laughs> the, the, the amazing thing about the Dunning-Kruger thing is like, the the more of an expert you are, the more humble you are about <laughs> your knowledge and the less of an expert are, the more the like an expert you act. Are, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, 100%, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, so. But that's what's so, it's almost like a trap for when you're ignorant of, let's say you play a certain way and you don't know how that's coming across, you, yes. it, you're less likely to find out about it because you're so believing some other version of reality or something. I don't know. I feel like self-awareness is really important in music, but it can also be a curse when it flies out of control and you, you become like, you know, imposter syndrome kind of thing. Like, yeah. wait, should I really be here? Do I suck? Like, <laughs> Hundred percent. You know, um, I play this music festival every February uh, in Arizona, Arizona Music Fest. It's just like this ridiculous orchestra that nobody's ever heard of. It's like, you know, players from New York and Chicago and Cleveland yeah. and the Mets. I saw you post that on Facebook just, one year. I was like, "What? That's the roster here? What the hell? I've never heard of this." It's just ridiculous. You know, Chris Martin's been out there, yeah. and um, Billy Gerlach from National Symphony comes out a lot. And uh, this last year, uh, Conrad Jones came, principal at Indianapolis. Okay. He is just such a great guy and a, just a sweet player. Just yeah, amazing. He grew up on Long you know, musical guy, like pretty close to where I grew That's up. That's right. Yeah. He did. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so um, we were talking one night and he says, you know, um, you know, I'm working on your shortcomings is something that's very important, but it's almost you, you reach a point where it starts to become self-defeating. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like because then it starts to eat at your confidence. It's like, wow, I just really can't, you know, triple tongue any faster or whatever it is that you're working on, you know. So it has to be balanced with a lot of stuff that, you you know, kind of keeps your confidence level high. Yeah. And I, I was like, you know, such a great insight. And the funny thing is, I mean, I tried to recruit him for Hot Springs one year, and then he went and won a job, I think, in Tucson or something like that. <laughs> Oh, he's too busy. So, you know, but, um, and here we were, you know, a few years later, yeah. you know, uh, bonding like that as, uh, as peers, it was just really kind of a cool experience, you know? So I think that what you just said is like that every, I've come to this realization over the past year a lot, and it's kind of the philosophy of this podcast we tried to make, which is that every value needs some kind of competing value to keep it in check. So like mm -hmm. the Kodawari philosophy is, 
the idea of like aiming at perfection, attending to all the details along the way. But it has this other part of like also know that you cannot achieve it, but still attempt the (laughs) achieving it anyways. And it's the knowledge that you can't achieve it, which makes you like in a performance, for example, just let go and, and go lift up your legs and float downstream and just see what happens because you have to have that letting go combined with the the fight of perfection and aiming it and details and all of that stuff. Um, yeah. That's probably what he was talking about. Like the inner critic needs the inner yeah. Buddha that also loves you or something, you know? I mean, yeah, it's like I've often said that trumpet players, you know, have um, confidence and self-doubt in abundance, you know, both <laughs> yeah. of those things kind of coexist at the same time, you know, and and I think most good musicians do as well, you know, because we're we're highly self critical, um, and it took me a while, and I think it takes most musicians a while. Some people never reach this point where they are able to walk off stage and go, "Wow, that was really great," you know, because mm-hmm. it's like you know, it's it's we're we're always driven for, for perfection, you know, we're driving for perfection all our lives, and. It's difficult sometimes to just stand back and go, all right, nailed it. That was great, you know, because we still walk off stage remembering that clam we had or something, you know. And, um, you know, so, you know, sometimes we have to cut ourselves a little bit of slack to enjoy the moment and realize, hey, we're doing what we do. We did Mahler 5, what, a couple of of seasons ago. I forget when it was. Uh, Yeah, a couple of seasons ago maybe. And – Right before the conductor walked out, I turned to our principal trombone player. I'm like, hey, what did you want to do when you were a kid? He goes, well, um, I guess this right here. I'm like, <laughs> damn right. And we're fucking doing it. Yeah. We're playing Mahler 5 right now. You know? I mean, that's where it's at, you know? You have it's those, like, like out-of-body I'm not going to sit there and be yeah. nervous about Yeah, it's like, you know, look, it's like the, the bottom of the ninth inning in the seventh game of the World Series score tied, you know? Yeah. There are two kinds of players. They're the ones who go – this is what I've dreamed about my whole life. I hope I don't fuck it up. And then there's the guys who are like, this is what I dreamed about my whole life. And now I get to live it for real. You know, mm-hmm. who's going to win the game? Yeah. Those second guys. Right. And so you got to enjoy it when you're in the moment, because you got to remember, this is what we, what we've always wanted to do and we're doing it, you know? So, um, but you know, then the next day, Okay, how am I going to fix this? Sure. How am mm-hmm. I going to fix that? You, yeah, know? you so. wake up, have a cup of coffee and then go, all right, this is what went wrong. I've got a week before the next thing. How can I address it? You know, yeah, it's funny. It's, 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 um, yeah, you know, so I'm really into, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say it's that, that, that's opposite idea. I really love, um, I think it was Niels Bohr, this famous like, uh, physicist or particle physicist. He said, mm-hmm. um, uh, the opposite of a shallow truth is a falsehood, but the opposite of a deep truth is another truth. And it's like, you should be critical of your playing and always seek to improve yourself. That's true. You should just be in the moment and love everything that's coming out of your playing and just go with the flow. That's also true. But there there are obviously a contradiction there, but at the deep level, you have to be both at the same time. It's like two sides of the same coin kind of thing. I found the Absolutely. the critic 100%. much easier to yeah. be than the love my playing person. Oh, I mean, same. I mean, she'll have amazing performances and then people, be pissed off. <laughs> I'll be like, dude, that sounded amazing. What are you What are you I mad about? <laughs> Everybody is like, I don't know. like you're not hearing certain things. But I think um, what I was gonna ask was, um, did you have to do any work to like dial down that self doubting sound, or just it just kind of disappears as you have more experience? Because I can't seem to get a hold of it right now. 
like personally. I'm always like, well, I, terrible. I, yeah, I got into, you know, 15 years ago or so I, I got into, um, a real funk, um, you know, um, personal life upheaval usually causes, you know, issues, you know, um, going through a divorce. And, um, so it kind of, you know, crept into my playing as well. And, you know, it just kind of starts with one little thing and then it just kind of snowballs from there and you you try to fix it and you try to fix it and things get worse and worse and worse. And my playing just fell apart. It was awful. It was embarrassing. I mean, my, it was my tonguing for the most part. Um, you know, it got to the point where I couldn't, play William Tell Overture, you know, I was like, and it was just embarrassing, you know, so, I mean, I filled out an application for culinary school, you know, I was going to quit trumpet and go be a chef, because I figured I already worked crazy hours for no money, so I might as well (laughs) be a chef, but, um, but, you know, I started, um, I I had had some golf clubs, but I hadn't really played much, um, you know, after my first daughter was born, I, I mean, I did, I, I started playing when I was like 30 mm-hmm. or so. And then my daughter was born a year or two later and, um, I kind of put them in the, sh- in the closet, you know, yeah. next 15, 16 years. And so, um, so I started, I was one summer I was like, okay, I'm going to take my golf clubs and try to, try to figure this game out, you know? And, and so I remember I'd be practicing and I, I took this lesson with this old guy. He hung around at this city golf course and um, the whole time he was just like, slow down, take it easy, let the club do the work, mm. you know, don't try to kill it, all this kind of stuff. And when I was done, I was like, that was the best trumpet lesson <laughs> I've ever had. Nice. You know, and I went home and I wrote down all this stuff, you know, and I realized, you know, the trumpet's got a sweet spot just like a golf club. If you hit that sweet spot on the golf club, you know, the ball just goes nice and straight and far with very little effort, mm. you know. And um, and that's the same with the trumpet. If you hit that resonant sweet spot where the, you know, I mean, there's a physical, acoustical um, value that determines where this piece of pipe will resonate at 240. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, at 440, yeah. you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, you see people with their tending slides out, you know, two inches. That's telling me that they're, you know, they're pinching and they're 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 they're, that's actually one of the biggest shifts in my playing is i was playing don juan for you and you were like what the hell your Mm -hmm. tuning slide out that far for and you pushed it in you're like just sit down on the pitch and i was like whoa it took me a couple a couple practice sessions to adjust where my center was but that that's still where my tuning slide is today Good for you, man. I mean, that's like such a huge issue with most trumpet players. Because let's face it, trumpet players are not told that they're flat very often, right? Always sharp. And that's because we want to control everything. You know, we're like squeezing down and we think we have to project by, you know, by getting that tight, narrow, bright sound. But, um, you know, I mean, if you hear a singer like that, you know, we've all heard that tenor is like, you know, and it's like, he thinks he's projecting because he's got his, you know, voice all squeezed tight, you know, but nobody wants to hear that shit, man. <laughs> you know, it, you want it to have as much resonance and life as possible. And the way to do that is hit where that instrument wants to resonate. Yeah. All right. And um, if you're not hitting that spot, you're forcing the instrument and to, to, 
you know, you're basically turning the trumpet into an amplifier instead of an oscillator, which mm. is what it really is, right? It oscillates pitches from standing waves that we create in the instrument through the buzzing of our lips. It creates a standing wave, and that's how we get the maximum resonance with minimum effort. Yeah, you know? and I, I, my teacher, Kevin Cobb, would always describe that phenomenon as like if you had a beach ball floating on water and you put your hand on it, you would find this natural, you push down a little bit, it pushes back up, and there's this just natural balance that you find when you're in I like that it. resonance space. If you're trying to hold like the beach it. ball underwater, it's unstable and... And if if you're not touching it at all, it just floats away from you. There's no, you're not grounded in anything. So there's this balance there. It's the same thing, really, that we were just talking about competing opposite opposite forces, right? It's like if you're if you're too open, you have this airy sound that doesn't pass in the classical world. But if you're trying to be that tenor with the perfect, you know, whatever, then you're just tight and there's no freedom to your sound. There's no resonance or whatever. Um, Well, I think I think the instrument, you know, can find its own. you know, if we allow it to find its 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 center, then you know, you know, you said something about big and airy. You know, I mean, airy is usually when you're. Uh, it, that's a, another way of not being in the the resonant center mm-hmm. of the of the pitch. You know, so um, people talk a lot about core. You know, as tr- brass players, they talk about getting the core, you know, and and they talk about centering the pitch, you know, but I don't think centering should be used as a verb necessarily for um, the trumpet, you know, because um, it makes people feel like they have to do something, you know, they have to like bring this sound in like, it's, you know, look, man, we're blowing through this tiny little, the throat and the mouthpiece is tiny, the cup and a trumpet mouthpiece, you know, compare it to, you know, a trombone mouthpiece, you know, yeah. I mean, Trombone's what twice as long as a trumpet, but the mouthpiece is like what four times bigger. <laughs> right, right. You know? So, so we're getting quite a big uh, advantage uh, there, uh, you know, or disadvantage as the case may advantage be. Advantage if you so find it's not the like advantage. The sound is, right. <laughs> it's not like the sound is going to go flopping down the street or anything, you know. If we just kind of like let things go, I mean, that's really what it's all about is letting it go. You know, having the, um, you know. Being completely, you know, not completely, but, you know, as much as possible, you know, relaxed enough to just kind of like let the sound go, let the lips vibrate so that that response happens immediately. When, you know, the the air and the lips and the instrument, they all come at the same exact time. You have that instantaneous response. That's when you're hitting the center of the instrument. Response problems only happen for one reason, and that's when the lip and the instrument are in disagreement with each other. Mm. All right, your lip wants to vibrate at a different spot than the instrument wants to vibrate. Your lips are wrong, and you're <laughs> going to get that far until you find either you find the instrument or you force the instrument yeah. to be somewhere where it doesn't want to be. I can so relate with all this that you're talking about, like with my personal experience with like left hand, right hand tension. It's just as like mm. eye opening. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yes, I need to just constantly focus on that. But when you start to self doubt, like those just always go to the, you know back of your mind like you just stop thinking of all that but it's really related oh yeah you know i mean when when shit gets gets going bad you know when you get in the middle the heat of battle you know sometimes you know it's like your worst uh your worst uh, tendencies kind of take over you know because we spend our whole lives doing something incorrectly then we Right. Yeah. Take it to that next level where we're doing more correctly. And it's like, but then you get in the heat of battle and you just like, <clears throat> you yeah. go back to what you know. Yes. And you want to control it, but controlling it is when you clamp down and that is what causes 
response to not happen. Yeah. It causes you to go sharp, all those. And then there's like a cascading effect of all these negative things. When response is off, mm. you start getting tighter and then tighter, more tightness. That's it's right. worse response. And then you're just Absolutely. a miserable trumpet player, violin player. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Um, this will be a good time. What are you drinking, by the way? Um, well, let's see. Uh, my cocktail there. is my cocktail is called the um, Ardbeg Oogadol. Gotcha. <laughs> with a t with a tiny splash of water. Um, we have a non-alcoholic version of this in the show notes. <laughs> it's called a splash of water. <laughs> but um, now, one of the things I've done, I've got you know everybody's got their little pandemic projects. I've kind of gotten into the single malt scotch, oh, okay. especially from I especially from Isla because you know I always have liked Lagavulin. So um, there's so many distillers in Scotland, and I decided okay, I'm going to kind of start with what I know. And so um, I've uh, and have you found you've built this like database of noticing more and more subtlety of, of differences? Absolutely, yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. You know, just the other day I was like doing a little testing of my old Lagavulin, which I've drank for years. And I was like, holy crap, there's licorice in there. I've sure. never noticed that before. You know, little things like that, yeah. you know? So it's just kind of fascinating to kind of like start to get into that a little bit, you know? I think musicians are, are particularly good at, you know, getting into things, whether that's cooking or cocktails or wine. Like we, we have the mindset that we apply it to music for like 30 years or whatever it is. And then it's like, all right, where else can I put this like perfection beam and, and, and master something else? Cause yeah. you know, right. I got really into cocktails well, you know, in the I, quarantine. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 I did too. Um, buddy and my, and I would, we, we would text each other pictures of our latest cocktail creations uh -huh. and so forth. Um, but when, when winter hit, that's when I kind of got into just uh, single malt okay. scotches. But before that I was doing, you know, all kinds of cocktails. I, in summertime, it's all gin around here, okay. you know, so different martinis and, um, you know, Negronis. And, I have to have a uh, re-meeting with gin. I had a bad experience with gin when I was younger, mm -hmm. and it's still tagged in that, like, memory somewhere that, like, it it doesn't, I'm scared of it <laughs> from, Interesting. from one experience. Most people have a, te most people have a tequila story, but uh, oh, my tequila a lot of people have a gin story. Knock on wood. <laughs> Oh yeah. Normally we yeah, would be having us. margaritas on Margarita Monday, as we've come to call it. All right. Uh, yeah. Yes. We were out of tequila, so I just got an old fashioned. Old fashioned today. Um, nice. With Rittenhouse. Weirdly enough, some of the just cheaper thirty dollar bottles of of rye taste the best when you're make, mixing cocktails. Um, I've found like you don't need to be spending too much money to get a really good mixed drink. Uh, Oh, I agree. I don't. I don't spend a lot of money. I mean, if I'm going to mix something in a cocktail, I'm not going to spend a lot of money on yeah. it. That's for sure. Um, yeah, I found that uh, getting into cocktails reminded me of, let's say, you're in a chamber music group and you're trying to balance the different voices of a chord or something. You have these different voices of a cocktail, like the the heat of the alcohol, the sweetness, the bitterness, and and the depending on the cocktail category, it might have not one of those, but um, like she likes her margaritas without any sweetness, actually. Um, I mean, obviously the, what is it? The, the Cointreau has some sweetness to it, but um, I like to put a little agave nectar uh, mixed in as well. And you're just playing with these different things and trying to find a balance. I, I found it very similar to what, what you try to do when you're balancing a chord in a string quartet or a brass quintet or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I like a margarita with the three to one ratio, three of uh, tequila, two of um, Cointreau Grand Marnier, and one of lime juice. Mm -hmm. And I don't add any extra sweetener okay. either. So, because to me, there's plenty in the Cointreau. It's true. Yeah, the Cointreau is you know. pretty. We were looking up because she's like, oh, like maybe I should 
you're trying to have less sugar. Like it, it affects me kind of weird. I was like, well, let's see how much sugar the margarita has without adding any agave. And I was like, oh, it's still got like seven grams sugar, like <laughs> yeah. in, just from the Cointreau alone. That's true. Um, so speaking of uh, playing problems, I, 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 I went through one, was this t- 2016 or 17? I got really sick with like, it was just a sore throat and I kind of ignored it. Then there was like an orchestra concert, so I extra ignored it. I was like, I don't have time to deal with this. Just gonna. And then the day after the concert, I think it was pictures at an exhibition, I woke up and I was like, uh, I, I messed up. Like, I, I, it's my whole, it felt awful. So, yeah, you weren't able to play for a while. I remember it was like two weeks. I just couldn't play it. It went into like, what is it? The strep throat, strep throat becomes the other thing when it, whatever. And when I came back to playing, it felt bad, but like, all right, whatever, this makes sense. Next day, still whatever. But then I was like, I can't, I can't get out of the staff. I can't play high. I can't find my sound. And, and then the more problems there were, the more problems there were. And, and all of a sudden I was like, yeah, I was like, wait, am I, am I done with trumpet? I can't play. Like I, I, I've been working at this problem. It was the year after school. So I was basically just teaching and, and gigging around the area, but I didn't have any gigs for that month. I canceled a few because I couldn't play. I remember playing one concert on campus for some, you know, some whatever ceremony for the dentist department or something. And I just took everything down an octave. I told my friends, like, I'm going through something here, like, but I can still play the gig. They won't know what's going on. And Mm -hmm. that kept going for about two to three weeks. Then I was supposed to play Lab OM at the end of the month. And I was like, "I'm, I'm about to say I can't do it. And I went to warm up one morning and this flash kind of went through my mind of what it felt like to play when things felt good. And I just picked up the instrument and then it was back. And so that it both was awesome in the sense that the memory of that just, I found like the track, <laughs> it was like the, the train tracks just yep. needed to find the right switch or whatever. But it also terrified me that that, that can happen, that one little misalignment became like I was somewhere totally different and I was just paralyzed. Like I went to start a note and I was like, like I couldn't, I couldn't even just play a piano. Like, yeah. um, <laughs> um, is yeah, that well, now you're a real trumpet player. Do you think that's a rite of passage for a trumpet player? <laughs> yeah, You're not a real trumpet. Yeah. You're not a real trumpet player. And you go through something like that, dude, I have gone through so many ph- phases like that. I mean, I've, I've changed my embouchure a few times. I mean, you know, what, look, I, ch- I changed it, I guess, my um, junior year of college. Then I changed it right before grad school. And then little tweaks here and there, you know, as I discovered the role of it, mm. you know. And before each one of those times, I, I did it because I had completely broken down, you know. And then, of course, you know, when I went through my whole thing 15 years ago, when I almost quit, um, you know, discovering the secret by hitting golf balls and mm. realizing that it's all about um, letting the equipment do the work and finding the sweet spot and all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, so yeah, I've been through several phases like that, and um, each one of us, each one has made me um, more aware of what the most efficient ways are to play the trumpet for me, especially, but I truly believe that there are some things that I've learned over the years that are pretty much universal among, uh, for, for the best ways to play a brass instrument in general, yeah. you know? So, uh, but yet at the same time, each person has to yeah. personally find that for themselves. I feel like 
because it's it's slightly different for everyone. In a lot of ways, that's true. I mean, uh, there's a lot of we're similarities. We're all handicapped, too, I think, by the. Um, we're all handicapped by the way we start off as beginners. You know, we start with uh, everybody pretty much has a Rubank beginner band method or whatnot. And the first thing we do, what's the first note you play on the trumpet? Um, low C, probably. What's the first note you played? I think it was a low C. Exactly. Yeah. That low C, concert B flat. Absolutely. That's every beginner band bet method book you have is going to have that low concert B flat, C on trumpet. And what's the best way to do that is, you know, when you're a kid, you, you know, you play, you know, blow a raspberry, <laughs> you know, the inside of your, yeah. your lips. And then try to play high. You can't do it, right? Uh, because, you know, to play high from that position, you have to kind of like you start to squeeze like a drawstring. And it starts off, you know, as you play higher, you start off learning, I have to work really hard and squeeze hard to play high. Mm -hmm. And so um, if, if beginners are taught to start with a good embouchure where, you know, the inside of the lip is, you know, tucked in. You know, if, if you look at the embouchures of all the great players who have longevity and, um, you know, clear sounds, good range, evenness from high to low, you know, Wayne Bergeron, um, you know, Doc Severinsen, Wenton Marsalis, you know, all these guys go, I can go on and on, but they all have that same kind of setup, mm -hmm. you know, and they're keeping that lip out of the mouthpiece. But when we start and begin our band, lips going into the mouthpiece, and it just really makes things more difficult for everyone. So yeah. we say burn all those books and start all over. I mean, I've started a lot of students now. I've been teaching for um, since since I was an undergrad, so you know, probably twelve years or so. And I've played around with different experiments, and um, the best the best I found that the best students are when they don't get poisoned with other information from school, unfortunately. Um, they'll come right. to me and I'll be like, what are you doing? And sometimes even that, sometimes, yeah, sometimes you can't even help that though. They'll, you'll teach them, you'll set them up correctly and then they'll come back and say, well, my band director told me to do exactly. this. And, you know, their band, their band director's not even a trumpet player, you know, but yeah. what can you do? They play, they're so. a flute player who was probably maybe okay at flute. And then they played trumpet for right. two weeks in their, as part of their degree. And then they're telling the kids, pinch your lips for the high notes, which is the opposite of what I tell them. I, you know, right. and um, I wonder if I was programmed with something like that somewhere deep in my psychology. And, and there's always, <laughs> I'm always in tension with that because mm -hmm. it's those, those things, um, they become part of who you are, but they're not like a memory. It's like a detailed memory that you remember. It's just part of what you think you're supposed to do yeah and yes something very similar in violin technique so they start us in the uh -huh. first position right first finger second uh -huh. finger so for forever we don't explore any other positions and then we start mm -hmm. like being afraid of the high positions and then everybody's like oh i'm gonna play out of tune like tension this that so there's this like finish um violin method like that's just came out in i think late 90s like very recent they start the kids on fourth position with the harmonics so you don't have like any fear of heights, basically. What's it called? Um, color strings. Yeah, the color strings. Yeah. I remember hearing about that. Yeah. Anyway, those kids apparently right now in like 2020, like they're just acing like the top jobs and everything. Fearless, incredible, like just they prime them go. in a, such a different way, apparently. So good for them. Yeah. However you start, it, yeah. it, it probably has an effect 
it cascades down to be your framework for how you view trumpet. Like we're framework, we start on low C, so the stuff higher than that is the high notes that are scary. It's like yeah. I, I try to tell my students Absolutely. high notes are high frequency notes. They're not they're not up there. They're not these <laughs> Um, my, this new thing I've been really thinking about with students and with myself is flinching. There's there's a book called The Flinch, and one of the chapters is about cold showers, which we've gotten really into cold showers. And the first time you take a cold shower, your body flinches away from it. And then you can teach yourself over time that the cold water hits you, and you just open up your shoulders, and you just you don't flinch away. And I feel like that's what we do as trumpet players. Sometimes we flinch away from high notes or, or something difficult that we're scared of. And we don't realize that we're, our, our shoulders are coming in, our air is not going forward as much, and we're just sort of, we're in that defensive scared position. And I don't know, maybe that's just wired into us from starting with the Rubank band methods where it's, it's like low C is fine, you know, have fun with that. But right. the third space C in the, in the middle of the staff, they call high C. It's like, what? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> No, you're, you're right. It, it, it's, you know, I mean, look, what does a therapist start with when you go to start therapy? They start with childhood, right? Yeah. So, I mean, everything stems from how you first learned something, you know, and, and it's so impossible to unlearn things, you know. I used to go see Arnold Jacobs in the summers um, after I came to Memphis, you know, so we're talking 1990 for the next three or four years at least. Um, he... Um, you know, he would always talk about how, you know, we're not talking about um, getting rid of old habits. We're talking about adding new habits, mm -hmm. you know. And I thought that was always a good way to to um, approach things. Yeah, maybe it's not possible to get rid of bad habits. They, they I think. No, that that was his whole yeah. point. You know, that if you concentrate on that, it's just you're. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know. So I think there was a neuroscientist you know, um, that studied this. I remember he gave a lecture. He's a neuroscientist, but he's also quite an accomplished piano soloist. Um, I forget his name, but um, he's Israeli and he came and did a lecture at, at Stony Brook when I was there. And that was his main argument is that you cannot delete a bad habit like it's a computer hard drive from your brain. You can replace it with a better habit through repetition, make that the most likely path that your nerve impulses will cascade down. And, but the other one's still there. And it will, yeah. it's sort of like paths in the woods. If you walk a certain path through the woods, even if you don't make a path there, it starts to become a path because everyone's walking along the same pathway, but you can't just delete it. Um, I, I found that model when, when, when I shifted my thinking to be like, I can't, if you try to not do something, you're like, don't think about like a zebra. It's like, well, now I'm thinking about a zebra. I can't not think about something, and it's right. It's, yeah, it's yet more tension and thinking. And yeah, you know, there's as I got into golf, there's a book um, that really helped me somewhat with golf, but a lot with trumpet. It's called "Golf Is Not a Game of Perfect" by Bob Rotella, mm. and um, you know, so he talks about that that same type of thing he says you know you, you the brain does not understand the word don't you know like don't hit it in the water <laughs> what are you going to do you're going to hit it in the yeah. water you know so and it's the same with trumpet don't clam the high c your brain hears clam the high c yeah so you know it's uh, and it it's you know it's such a mind game you know music playing music playing golf it's just all the same thing you know i mean you know, I mean, you you really 
Rotella talks about another thing in this thing. He he did a lot of work with Jack Nicholas. He you know <coughs> is one of the most majors of any golfer in history. Widely considered to be the greatest golfer. I think Tiger, even though he he's still three majors short, but still. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so he's at a. Um, a conference with Jack Nicholas, and Jack Nicholas said something. I can't remember exactly the details, but Jack Nicholas said something about I've never blown a lead on Sunday when I've gone to the final round leading by three strokes. And so, some guy in the audience comes up to Bob Rotella, who was co-presenting this uh, this seminar with Jack Nicholas. And so, this guy from the audience came up to him and goes. Jack Nicholas is wrong, you know. I mean, he named some tournament where he blew the lead, you know, yeah. like that. And the guy, and so Bob Rotella goes to the guy. He goes, "What's your golf handicap?" And the guy goes, "Well, I'm about a 16, you know, which is like, you know, it means he shoots in the high 80s, you know, low 90s or something like that." And the guy goes, "Okay, so you're a 16 handicap from your club, and you want me to tell Jack Nicholas that he's thinking wrong, <laughs> you know?" So the whole idea was that Jack Nicholas. Forgot about the times when he failed mm. and remember the times he succeeded, you know. So people at peak performance create their own realities, you know. You remember the good things and you forget the bad things, yeah. you know. You block that stuff out of your brain, you know, and you just focus on the good. You visualize you visualize the what you want to do and then you achieve it. And if you don't achieve it, you don't think about that because you've got something else to achieve right the next second, you know? So it's like the, the letting go thing. Maybe there's an element of like, once you understand why you made a past mistake, whatever it is life, but performance, whatever, then you can let go of it. It's like, I've already understood it. I've now I don't need that memory because I've already extracted the information I need from it. Great. Let's move on. Um, But if you don't understand why it happened to you, then it can still haunt you. Right. Um, I want to talk just a little bit about course, performance yeah. nerves. Um, so you gave this yeah. little gem of advice that um, has stuck with me through the years. Back when, in 2014, you told the story of going golfing with a friend of yours and you were preparing for a Mahler 5 concert or some other big trumpet type of piece. And you were saying, you know, you were nervous, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, no one's shooting at you. And then you passed that concept onto us. And it became, I find that little things like that, that you can just repeat to yourself, like little mantras that contain a lot of wisdom. It could be a book. Mm-hmm. You could write a book about no one's shooting at you, right? But the sentence, when you're nervous right before a performance, you go, wait a second, no one's shooting at me. I'm, I just have to play the trumpet. Like, oh, okay. That's right. <laughs> and here's, you know, here the, the background of that story is that's my best friend, Dustin, who um, we met on the golf course. He had just gotten out of the Army. He was an Army Ranger in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was a medic for, I think I think he was in for six years. So he was a medic for five years. And then, uh, so he's a medic, patching up guys on the battlefield, but also, you know, carrying a rifle and having to fight. And then last year, he said he, he switched to what he called preventative medicine. He became a sniper. <laughs> it was get the bad guys before they got our guys. That's a funny thing. Um, so, yeah. But anyway, so he moved to Memphis. He picked it off of a map. He grew up in St. Louis, and he just like, for some reason, he just like, I'm going to go to Memphis. And he lived next to this golf course where I would practice every morning. And it's like, here's two nutty guys out there every day when it's 40 degrees practicing our golf swings. And I'm like, okay, we got, I got to know this guy. Cause we're literally the only two people here mm-hmm. for the whole week. Right. And 
But anyway, um, yeah, so he had been in the shit and the Middle East. And um, so that was his, when he had a bad golf shot, that's what he would say. Nobody's shooting at me, you know? And that was like some of the most powerful perspective I've ever gotten. Even better story about Dustin, um, uh, a few years ago, I got uh, diagnosed with IgA nephropathy, which is an a autoimmune disease that affects the kidneys. And um, my kidney function uh, completely declined to the point where they were gone. And Dustin gave me a kidney. He tested, Oh, that, that he nobody was, shooting at you guys, your kidney donor. That's oh, right. that's funny because so I legit kept that nobody's shooting at you as like it's it's in my vocabulary as a teacher and as a player. Hey, that's great. He's going to be very happy to hear that. I'm going to text him as soon as we're done. Awesome. That. I tell that story almost every day. I told it yesterday on the golf course to a guy I met on the oh, golf really? course. You know, yeah, it's it's um, you know, but it's it's such a great piece of perspective, you know, but um. Yeah, so he tested, and he we were such a good match. You know, I couldn't believe. I mean, he's a better match than my daughters might have mm-hmm. been, but they weren't really eligible. But since it's an autoimmune disease, uh, family donor, we share common DNA, and that heightens the chance that the disease comes back. Oh, um, so which it probably will someday. But you know, knock on wood. Hopefully, that will day will be for a while. Yeah, but um, yeah, uh, that that nobody shooting at you thing. I remember also. The, the last night of Hot Springs Festival, we went out for beers and stuff. And, you know, my flight was like one of those 6 a.m. flights. And right. I was sort of looking at it like, well, the concert ends at 10. I'm not going to not say goodbye to everyone. So, you know, I'm kind of just sacrificing. I probably won't sleep or if I do, it'll be for an hour or whatever. So we all got back at like 2 a.m. I slept till probably 3.30 and then the the van picked picked up whoever was going to the airport. And I got there plenty early, like 6 a.m. flight. I think we got there at 4.45 or something. It was The airport was empty. And then yeah. suddenly the computers broke down. And I'm sitting there, and I'm a nervous flyer anyway, so any airport day, like, I'm just on edge anxiety-wise. And <laughs> I'm thinking, oh I don't God. even – I wasn't flying a lot back then, so I didn't even know, like, if, if I just don't get to the gate on time, am I just screwed? Am I just going to have to fork over 300 bucks to, like <laughs> – I didn't know they would, like, make all the arrangements for you if, if they mess up. But their computers crashed, and we're just sitting there. We can't check our bags and whatever. I ended up missing the flight. But that little wisdom, like, popped into my mind as I'm, like, sitting there. My heart's beating. I'm like, what do I do? To, and then I was like, oh, yeah. No one's shooting at me. I was probably still a little drunk, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, be, no, yeah. But um, that's hot springs for you. <laughs> um, Man. So yeah, it's funny that I didn't know that um, Dustin is his name. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that was the 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 nobody shooting at you wisdom. Yeah, definitely tell him. Like I legit think about that at least probably once a day. Like when, because it, it works not just for music, just anytime you're stressed yeah. out about something. Absolutely. You're like, oh, it's the best zoom out. Perspective no one's there is. At me. That's right. And of course, now my daughter is in the army, but I mean, she plays Fife in the army. So it's not like anybody's going to be shooting at her. But, right. you know, she did have to like, during that, when they brought in the National Guard in last summer when Trump wanted to do his, uh, you know, so was bullshit, she um, in DC? She had to like help check in. Yeah, yeah, she's okay. stationed at Fort Myer, okay. which is right next to Arlington Cemetery. So her unit, uh, she's in the uh, U.S. Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. And so her unit is part of the Old Guard, which, you know, they also have the Tomb Sentries for the Unknown Soldiers, and the, um, or the Tomb of the Unknowns, they call it. And uh, 
um, also the caissons, you know, mm-hmm. the horses and all that kind of stuff. So it's, uh, so yeah, that's a, hmm. yeah, it's a really cool unit, but yeah. Um, do you have time for some bonus questions? Absolutely. Now Bring here's up. the, here's the policy for bonus questions. Feel free to be like, okay. boom, not, an- I'm not answering that. You know, <laughs> um, sometimes I'll, I'll go from really like f- funny questions to like what happens when you die type questions. So <laughs> feel okay. free to be like, no comment. Um, so the first one I usually ask is what's the most profound thing that you've changed your mind on over the course of your life? Most profound thing I've changed my mind on. Well, I mean, good Lord. I, I, I grew up in Mississippi, Southern Baptist in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, I would say um, everything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, you know, I was telling somebody yesterday how some of my friends that I grew up with will find me on Facebook. Oh, my God, it's so great to find you on Facebook. And then they look at my Facebook page and then they unfriend me, uh-huh. you know, because I'm not marching on the Capitol with them or uh-huh. something. Um, no, I um, no, I um, I would say the most profound thing is, you know, I've always been interested in in um, religion and, and people's, uh, uh, you know, in our need for uh the higher power and all that kind of stuff and i grew up you know it's like uh southern baptist it was like um this is it or you burn in hell forever and uh i'm an episcopalian now you know some a friend of mine asked me once i said are you religious i said no i'm an episcopalian so it's a hmm. very um it's it's a you know episcopalian church um is 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 really a community of people who um are united? Yes, we we all have a, you know, we all have this central belief, but it's really more about a community that supports each other, mm-hmm. you know, rather than do we really believe, you know, this and this and that, you know. So um, the Episcopal Church is very um, good about exploring, um, you know, the 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 scholarship on how the Bible was put together. So we'll talk about the writer of the Gospel of Mark instead of Mark, mm-hmm. you know, because Right. Who knows who wrote that? That stuff was put in later. But the wisdom can still and be And they're not the threatened by that kind of stuff. You know, it's like I told my daughters, you know, the the, the things, the, the teachings in there still, still make sense today. But if you want to look at it as a rule book for how to judge other people, then no, you're not, you're not getting what the intent should be. Right. I think. For me, I think it's like that difference between literal truth and metaphorical truth. Like the truth sure. of story, like the 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 story of Cain and Abel is like a paragraph long, but in it is just like the most beautiful life advice of like, no matter what happens to you, don't become resentful. And yes. it tells that through story. It It's not smart enough to just say it as a rule. It's smart enough. It's even smarter to tell it as a story so that it can, even though it a human being wrote that down, or let's say many generations of humans conglomerated their wisdom to write down a story like that. It's still, you can read it today and capture the wisdom. Yes. From it. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And whether, I mean, but we also have to realize that people back then did not have an understanding of, you know, how, you know, planets worked and how, you know, evolution, you know, science works yeah. and evolution, all that kind of stuff. It's, you know, um, so, you know, we have to, we have to 
look at things in the context of when they were written. Yeah. I mean, I've personally found um, an interesting, uh, as I get older, wrestling with that question of, if someone says, do you believe in God? My first question is, what do you mean by that word God? (laughs) And what do you mean by that word believe? And what do you mean by the word you? (laughs) Because it's like, I'm not one thing, certainly a part, there's a room in my mind that believes in God. But there's another rational part of my mind that's like, can make fun of people that are too, you know, literal with thinking religious thoughts. Of course. So there, we're, we're this conglomeration of things, but I think being a musician, whether you know it or not, you're accessing that faith room of your mind where when you play Bach, like you can tell Bach believed in God. I don't know what his specific literal conception of God was, but I can feel probably mm-hmm. that faith-based feeling that, that I mean, tr- especially Bach trumpet parts, sure. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's, I'm only 31, so maybe I have another 30 years to wrestle with that question. I don't know. Um, well, I know when I'm playing B minor mass, I I use God's name quite a bit. <laughs> not always, not always favorable. Yeah, that's fine. All right, other questions, bring them. All right. Um, uh, without getting, uh, you know, into trouble with naming names, naming situations, et cetera, what's the craziest thing that you've ever witnessed professionally in your field? We had a music director, um, and um, she was psychotic, right? And I won't name names, Mei and Chen, but <laughs> she was absolutely nuts. And at this time, I was the orchestra committee chairman, and um, so we had uh, we have a fire alarm in our concert hall that sounds a very loud B natural with strobe lights going on. And so we're rehearsing for a concert right of spring. Fire alarm goes off. We'd had problems with her wanting to keep conducting. Or no, it was actually a guest conductor who wanted to keep conducting during the fire alarm and the performance. I'm like, uh, we can't do this. I mean, yeah, most of the time it's some kid pulling a prank or whatnot. But still, it's a fire alarm, yeah. you know? So so we met. We had a policy. There's a fire alarm. This is what we do. We get off stage. We go at these exits, right? So... Happened the first time, we got off stage. It happened again, and I think the third time, uh, the the operations manager or whoever it was, uh, stage manager, didn't come on stage like they had done before. Um, and she just keeps conducting. Was and this all in the same? She's night? actually conducting a very soft part. Yes. Oh wow! So there's all kinds of crap going on with the fire alarm. So anyway, um, we. She keeps conducting, and this fire alarm is going off. It's very loud. He can't do anything because it's loud, yeah. and she's conducting something soft. What it, the hell is she trying to do, right? And so I'm orchestra committee chairman, and I stand up. I'm like, I'm sorry, man. We've got a fire alarm. You know, we, we've got to stop. And she just screams at me. You know, she's like, "Don't ever interrupt me again. <laughs> this is my rehearsal." And it just just went nuts. I mean, she was screaming at me, and um, then. Someone came on and says, we're on the phone with the fire department. They're, you know, it's false alarm. They're taking care of it, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And it turned into this big thing, you know? I mean. Um, oh, I see. It was a rehearsal. Yeah. Okay. That makes yeah, sense. That, I, th- I thought it was a performance. At first, I thought it was a concert. I was like, that's insane. But 
um, in the middle of the rehearsal, you had to no, 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 get no. up and empty was, and come back. It was a, it was a dress rehearsal, mm-hmm. but she's like screaming at me for wanting her to stop because there was a fire alarm going on, you know? <laughs> so, um, it's fascinating, but you know, um, the thing is, is this story, I mean, you know how the music world is. I mean, this is like, I mean, she had a lot of gifts, you know? I mean, she she was a very talented conductor, but she was psychotic. And so, you know, it's like this story spread like wildfire. So there are a lot of orchestras who had been considering her who were like, ooh, no, I don't think so, you know? So uh, we had a consultant between uh, executive directors who came in and was like an interim executive director. He came in and he called me in and wants to meet with the orchestra committee chairman. He goes, okay, I just came for the... Um, whatever they call it, League of American Orchestras convention. And uh, about 10 people told me the ver- their version of the fire alarm story. So tell me what really happened. <laughs> so, <laughs> this thing was going around every orchestra in the country, you know, so which gave me great gratification. I'm not going to lie. So I feel like the fire alarm anyway. thing is like the, the, the rule of a loaded gun. It's like treat every gun as if it's loaded. You can't go... Oh, but this gun's actually not loaded, so we don't have to be safe about it because I know it's not loaded. So nope. The whole point of the nope. rule is you follow it because it could be life or death, even if 90 times out of 100 it isn't. That's right. That's the whole point of a fire alarm. Like you don't tell That's kids right. in school, like, this is just a drill. Don't don't take it as seriously. You program that in. Like, if a fire alarm goes off, you get out of the building. If you're holding a gun... Treat it like it's loaded. Yep. Even mm-hmm. if you emptied the chamber yourself and you know you just did it, you still follow that rule because it will be safer, even if it's not literally accurate to, you know. That's right. Yeah, yeah another fire alarm story that we had, you know, we did have some problems with it. <laughs> it sounds like yeah, the fire alarm had a problem. <laughs> but um, this was in a performance, actually. Um, it was a, it was a, I think it was a, a school performance. So, you know, the hall was full of school kids. And we were playing Lanar 3. So I go off stage and I'm playing the Lanar call. And the exact second I start the Lanar call, all of a sudden there's this really loud be natural. And I'm I'm standing back there. I've got my eyes closed and I'm freaking out. I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck? Is that some kind of like weird bounce off the back wall or something? And then I realized it was a fire alarm. You know, so I just transposed up a half step and played the rest of the fanfare. That's <laughs> And of course the orchestra's walking off stage as I'm doing that, you know, because everybody like by that time Nope, we're getting up. We're leaving. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, so, yeah. that's funny. Okay, last question. Um, when did you laugh the hardest? I can't remember. Oh, when did I laugh the hardest? Good lord, I'm always laughing. <laughs> yeah, but the hardest. <laughs> I'm trying to think. <laughs> One time I remember particularly. This um, this after after a divorce, I was. I was uh, dating this woman. She and I had flirted on and off, you know, for years, but we had been married at different times, you know, and then we're single at the same time. And so um, I had played at her wedding, one of her weddings. (laughs) I I played trumpet. And so she gets the video out one night. She goes, let's watch this thing. I'm like, okay. She goes, I don't remember you playing at the end. Um, She goes, I remember you playing, you know, water music at the beginning, but... um, I don't remember you. Pl- what did you play at the end? I'm like, I, I don't remember, you know? And so anyway, um, so we start watching this thing. And so there's the water music. She walks down the aisle, you know, and then the uh, pastor's like, okay, let's, 
bow our heads in prayer. And as everybody's praying, you see me stand up and skulk out. <laughs> <laughs> because I had a concert right after that or something, you know, and we laughed really hard at that because we were trying to remember what happened at the end of the wedding. And here I am skulking out of her wedding, you know. So that was pretty funny. I guess you had to be there, but it was just, I laughed. We both laughed really hard at that. That was, that was a memorable laugh, yeah. So. I always ask that question. I can't even think of mine. I mean, either you. A lot. There's a lot. Well, I mean, I'm sure if I thought farther, I would, I would come up with some other stuff. Kind of a hard question because, like, usually those memories don't just, like, pop into your head unless they randomly pop into your head. You tend to laugh, like, yeah. Really randomly, like she'll just get in a giggling mode, and I'm just like, "What's funny?" And she's like, <laughs> "Like I don't, I don't know what triggers it, but I don't know why." Um, well, I know my wife and I. Um, I don't know if you've watched the show Veep on HBO. Oh, it's been recommended yeah. so much, but I never got in. I never like started it, dude. When we watched that show, we would have to hit pause like three or four times in every show just so we could laugh. I mean, that show just just really brought the funny for us. Uh-huh. You know, it hit my particular funny bones. Gotcha. What's your, and I also thought Letter Letterkenny was really funny too. So. What was your favorite show that you binged during pandemic year? Uh, Letterkenny. Yeah. I think. Yeah. What was ours? Dark, probably. Oh, maybe dark. I don't Although that got too dark, obviously. It's, a, it's this like German show. It's about like timelines and all this stuff and... <laughs> we were like already feeling what's it called it's called dark. dark it's a netflix original um it's in german um and i don't know we we still have to watch season three we yeah, just kind finished of finished it it was too much i think back in like good. have you seen the did you see the beforeners i don't think so, think so. that's a good no. one that's uh filmed in uh that's in uh, norwegian yes norwegian mm-hmm. so it's filmed in Norway. All these people start showing up in the middle of the harbor there from different times, you know. So you got Vikings, you got Victorian oh, okay. people, you got cavemen, all blending into modern society. Cool. Huh. It's fascinating. It's really cool. So nice. it's all of our interests, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we like we like Vikings. We're oh, we're watching Vikings right now. Vikings is really yeah. good. Yeah. So. Ragnar Lothbrok. Yeah. And we also watched um we we didn't finish it, but what what's the one with um like Ted Danson and Heaven? Um, oh, uh, good place. The good place. Yeah. The good place. That's uh, what really season good. did we get up to? Three, four. Three or four. Or, yeah. I, I felt like the first couple seasons were like really amazing, and then it, it sort of started losing my attention a little yeah. bit. That could be me. I don't know if it's the show or me. Yeah, the good place has probably the best series finale of. Oh, really? Oh, seen. so you would say it, we yeah. should definitely finish it. I definitely think okay. so. It's just so well done at the end. It's just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So, um, but yeah, but Letterkenny is one of those things. I just, you know, most people, a lot of people haven't heard of it. It's Canadian comedy, and it's just, it's just, you know, if it's if it suits your tastes, it's some of the funniest crap you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't, you're like, you know, gotcha. So. All right. Well, we yeah. can say goodbye off air, but I'll say, you know, thanks so much for coming on and. uh Hopefully we can yeah, maybe do it again sometime. Yeah, thank you. That'd be great. It's good to see you and nice to meet you too, Yanka. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Exploring Kodawari. If you enjoyed it, we hope you'll consider sharing it on social media and with friends. You can also help us out by leaving a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Those help us more than you would think. And if you'd like to help us out in a more substantial way, consider going over to our website to make a donation through PayPal. Links are in the episode notes for this.
You can do this as a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation. All of that support will help us to set aside time in order to create content for the podcast and the blog. And finally, please get in touch with us and say hi, either on social media or privately through email. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and see you next time.